we're going to play just a, a little video, and we pose, uh, posed a question to uh, Emily Gibbons, and the question was, um, what gives you the greatest joy in your relationship with God? And so I, we're going to just play that. You can just listen to what she talks about her relationship with God. The greatest joy in my relationship with God would be without a doubt the reality of his presence, the reality of knowing him, being united in him, and uh, praying constantly that he would be uh, a part of every conversation, a part of every, a part of every outreach. And he loves, he takes pleasure in answering our prayers in that way. So we've seen him um, be... Uh, infusing life into uh, the study of his word or into conversations and I love that dependency I just absolutely love the fact that I can do nothing without him and he is definitely the best friend and also the the greatest God that we can uh, have uh, fellowship with and then uh, impart that uh, love to other people so that they can also come into an understanding of who this God is this glorious God uh, that they would want to also praise him. Uh, so I think the reality uh, is just the greatest joy. The reality of his presence, his powerful presence in our life uh, at all times. So thanks for the great question. Bye now. The question for you. What gives you the greatest joy in your relationship with God? If I pose that question for you, well, how would you answer that? Now, this last week on relationships that matter, probably one of the more complex ones, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? And realize this as we dig into it here today, that I'm going to be moving at about a 30,000-foot level. And it's not simple because you can write whole books on this particular topic. But as it comes to God... Uh, understand for us that we're very visual people and we're, we're uh, experiential people and asking the question, uh, you can't really talk and face-to-face with God. You can't touch him. So how do we have a relationship with God himself? Matter of fact, I, I think of growing up and, and you think of even hearing the story, for example, of Moses. And Moses walked up in the mountain, and he couldn't look at God, or he would die. And you go, oh, so as a young child, we we hear that, and we go, how do you know God? And if you can't visualize, you can't see him, then what? Matter of fact, dig into the Bible. And you begin reading verses, and it says that God is actually invisible. Matter of fact, let me put a verse on 1 Timothy 6.15, which God will bring about in his own time, God the blessed and the only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in an unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might and forever. Amen. We can't touch him. We can't see him. How do we have a relationship with him? Now, let me even push farther. I spent some time studying at seminary and did some formal theology. And a part of my story was I actually got hired by a church at age of 37. Did a very much of a career shift. And by the way, God might interrupt your life sometime as well and do something like that. 
But I was hired as the first youth pastor, and in the job description, you know, you have that other duties is required, if you ever have a a job description like that. And it came to the point where I I moved over, as as the church grew, we were growing pretty fast, and I moved over to adult ministry, and I wanted to do some formal training in the terms of studying. Um, So I ended up going to Bethel Seminary, going to an accelerated program, and, and the studying was really enjoyable for me. I like to read. I had done a lot of studying even previously to this. Um, But my life back then was kind of like this. I'd spend about 50 to 55 hours a week at the church. It was pretty common. I was spending somewhere in that seminary years about 20 to 30 hours a week on, on studying and going down there. And then there was this thing called the family had a wife and had a couple kids that were in high school and they were really demanding somehow they they think that they wanted a relationship with me and and it was about two years into that process of going to school that I had an encounter with God in my relationship with him now I understand I couldn't see him but I believe this the Holy Spirit was uh putting some guilt, I think, in my life. And, uh, and, and it kind of came to a question, Ken, do you want an education at the expense of your wife and discipling your kids? And, um, but there was one other piece to it as well. God was confronting me on my relationship with him. And, and I realized that even by going to seminary, even studying, it doesn't guarantee that you're moving in a deeper relationship with him. Matter of fact, I, I think it was stagnant. And, and it was a call back on my life of what it meant to have a relationship with God and how it really intersected as well with other pieces. As a matter of fact, let me put a, a truth there. If you're following along in the bulletin outline, I said it this way, a key truth here. Our relationship with God connects with every other relationship that we have. If we think that we can hide or ignore a relationship with God, folks, we're fooling ourselves. And I don't care if you're 80 years old, you're 40, or you're 18 The truth is, everyone has a relationship with the creator of this universe. Now, it might be a bad one, but everyone has one. And it intersects with every area of our lives. I think people are just in denial. Listen, one day, one day, everyone is going to be confronted in their relationship with God. And some people, I think, try to do it this way. I'm just going to put it in a box. I'm going to walk out into the garage, and I'm going to put it up on the shelf, and then I'm going to ignore it. But I'll say this. One day, that box is going to get pulled down, and it's going to get opened up, and it's going to say, your relationship with God. Now, it may, might be that it takes place on the day that death is knocking at your door. But it will happen. Now, there's another issue here I, I, where I need to bring in this morning, and it's something that 
I learned really after the fact of going to seminary. And matter of fact, we rarely were, we didn't just even talk about this particular issue. Looking back at my instruction, formally it's the idea of what's called pre-theology. It goes like this. There are presuppositions that you and I have about who God is. And these presuppositions, you didn't get them through school. You got them at home, growing up at home. And as you grew up, there was something already built into you, an idea of what does it mean to have a relationship with God. Even when you read the Bible, if you're doing a a Bible read-through right now, recognize this, there are these ideas about who God is and how to have a relationship with Him that impact the way you actually come to the New Testament as you're reading through that. So your growing up years influence your relationship even today. And yes, I'm, not, I'm going to say this, Sunday school, if you grew up in a church, that contributed as well. But if, even if you did not grow up in a church, there's movies, media, your home still impacted you as to who God is and how do we relate with him. Then there's one other piece, and we'll get to it a little bit later in the sermon. It's the idea of the word Father. Because we know that there's a connection with the word God and the word Father. And there's a strong connection. What do we believe about the word father? And that was learned at a very young age. Matter of fact, parents, I got to throw this at you. Uh, Just I'm going to put it on the screen here. Parents, and, and especially if you're a dad here today, I would say it directly to you. You are not just teaching your children about God. You are actually teaching them how to relate to God, but it's not in any formal way. They're just watching. And they're looking, and they're actually, kids are viewing our relationship with God, and they're learning from it. And I don't think we have a clue that we're actually doing that. Now, it's true, some of us come from homes that had great influence in the understanding of God, some not so much. So how do people view God? How do these presuppositions that we have about God come into play? And here's where I want to just walk through a number of these things as people learn to relate to God and how they view God coming out of their growing up years. I want to remind you of some of these before we even understand, even dig as to how we relate to God. So if you follow along in the outline again, the first one, ways to relate and to understand God. Somewhere in the past, some of you might have learned this, that God is our coach. He's like a coach. Now, it's not a personal relationship like family, okay? Um, But a coach is is something like this. You know what? I'm going to join God's team. So I'm going to join the church or join the faith. I'm going to get on his team. And, And the Bible becomes the playbook, and the training manual. And, and, and yes, God, he's not necessarily always a harsh coach. He's encouraging you to what? Run a little faster. Do a little more work. Take a couple laps. A little more effort, Ken. 
And, and you know, it's our responsibility to train a little bit more, train a little harder. And, And once in a while when a coach, and maybe you've had a coach in the past that's patted you on the back and said, nice job, great effort. Is that what you understand as who God is and learned? There's a second one, number two. God is our teacher. Now, what does a teacher want? Learn just a little bit more. And you know that good students, what they do is really they memorize the scriptures and they learn the deep doctrines. And you realize the teachers will have a test someday, don't you? So we need to remember how to learn the stuff so we can regurgitate it back on that test. And it's useful. At some point, we can begin to go, we can share it with other people, and they look at us and go, yeah, we're really spiritual. And make sure you spell his name right. And by the way, if you don't study, there's always detention, you know. another view of God. Let me give you a third one, that God is our boss. For some people, they approach it this way. We work for him. It's about getting the job done. Make sure you put in enough time that he wants. And and becoming a Christian is like an employee. Put in a solid eight hours of work at least five days a week. And realize, as his boss, he has performance reviews. But he's the one that gets to decide who gets the bonuses and the extra vacation or who gets the raise or who gets the cut or maybe for some who gets fired. God, is that you? But there are other ways that we figure out God in this relationship. Actually, from a young age, we learn, if you've grown up in a church, you've learned the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. That word father, again, as I stated earlier, that also comes into play in terms of our understanding of who God is. And for some people to speak about God as father, it's actually risky. Our minds start swirling. The reason, I don't think it's hard to figure out that the word father evokes some emotions in people. For some, it evokes the image that they would rather ignore. Let me give you some views of God as Father that's connected to our fathers. Number four there, God is the distant or passive Father. And I'll be honest, this was, for me, this was me growing up. See, Dad doesn't usually express affections. And why would the creator of the universe tell you that he loved you or that he had affections for you? See, a distant dad assumes this. They know that I love them. See, that's the distant father. They don't have to speak the words very often. We just have to watch them. And in this kind of father, if, if there's pain or emotion or even happiness... The dad just nods his head. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, he tends to be flatlined in his emotions. Uh, and the realization that 
every kind of father we've had has consequences and how we connect it to God. But there's another one, number five, that God is the authoritarian father. And this one, it's about the rules. He hands out the lists of do's and don'ts and he erupts you and interrupts you and says no to the things that are important to you. And in this kind of father, the hearts can be squashed. And the father brings out the, the, the Bible and he points out all of those verses that has about be obedience. See, he's really not interested in your desires, your goals, only his goals. And the father doesn't need an intimate relationship with you. What he really wants is your will in this kind of father. But there's another kind of God that some of you learned as well. Some of you grew up in a profoundly harsh home. Number six, God is the abusive father. See, abusive fathers inflict pain on their children emotionally, mentally, physically, and even sometimes sexually. And I don't think there's any greater torment in life than at the hands of an abusive father. You know that it destroys the emotions of kids. And it shapes their relationship with God profoundly. Was that your home that created a lens of who God is, and you're still trying to figure it out now. But there's another one. How about this one, number seven? God is the absent father, the type who's just totally gone. See, some of you had a father that you maybe did not even know. Maybe he died young or adoption, whatever it might be, and there's this idea there that he's not like the passive father who he's just not there. And he's a dad that would never intervene if there's trouble involved. He's just gone. You realize that if you feel abandoned or neglected by an earthly father, how that begins to fit in with a heavenly father. Let me give you another one, number eight. How about God is the accusing father? He proclaims to love you with his whole heart, but he has the look. See, in his mind, he's trying to motivate you to do what's right. And he thinks that if he points out the failures in your life, then you're going to become a good man or a good woman. And he looks to motivate you next time to try just a little bit harder. You know what? Showing affection for this kind of father... That's for sissies. And if you grow up with this type of father, that God is accusing you and watching you and just waiting to pounce on you. So what do we do? How do we get to know God? How do we have a relationship with him? And we realize the fact that God has sent his son into the world to build a relationship between himself and us. Now, I've got to point one thing out, just from a Bible doctrine, theology perspective. You understand, through Adam and Eve, we were born in the world and have turned our back on God. And we've said, we really don't want it. It's not necessary. 
that's what the flesh, that's what being born in this world actually means. So then how do we pursue this relationship that matters to the nth degree? What do we do? How do, where do we go? So here's where we need to go this morning. Let me fill in the black. How do we rightly understand and relate to God as Father? The answer, we look to the Son, to Jesus, to know the Father and to understand what a relationship actually looks like. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14 this morning. You may want to underline a couple of key phrases in this passage or highlight them, but I want to begin by reading from verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, do you know him and have seen him? Now, understand for Thomas hearing that, that statement would have drove him crazy. And then Philip kind of jumps in and reacts. And look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father then. And it's enough for us. I think Philip here is going, okay, Jesus, are you hiding your dad in a hotel room somewhere? Where is he? Show him to us. And look at the response in verse 9. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. They would have been referring to the miracles themselves. Seven times in this text, Jesus infers the same thing over and over and over again. Look at me, Philip, Thomas, look at me. You see the Father. I and the Father are one. So how do we know and how do we relate to our Heavenly Father? We look to the Son. As He relates to His Father, and if you want to know the Father, His Father, what we see is we look at Jesus to say, what are the characteristics of God the Father? We look to Jesus. We look to the Son. We want to know his character. We look to the Son, to Jesus. Now, one of the things I discovered this week is that Jesus always spoke of God as Father, except when he prayed, except one time. And it was that when he went to the cross, he said this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark 15. That was a judicial function that Jesus had to do to pay the penalty for sin. There had to be a break in the relationship. But in the 21 instances where Jesus prayed, he always addressed God as his Father. So here's the deal. The word Father. Some of you hear that, and immediately what you smell is alcohol on somebody's breath. Or you feel 
anger when that word father comes along. Because he, he blasted you every time you did something wrong. But we must hear this. Recognize as God looks at us that we had imperfect fathers in this world. He knows. He knows. He knows the wounds that we have been inflicted with. He understands that. But he's inviting us to something different than distancing ourselves from him. Him being our father, he's not our dad's. But we come to him with presuppositions. And how do we take steps? I want to bring in one verse here because it's so important when it says to realize that he's not our dad's. What does it mean then? Where do we go? Psalm 34 is such a great verse. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Your dad may not have been that good or just average. Our Heavenly Father is good. Blessed is the man who, must, who takes refuge in Him. So the question would be, you be willing to seek and see what you have believed and what you have learned and ask the question, is it really true? So today, the pathway. If you want to know the Father, look at His Son. And don't allow the fathers from the past to define what a relationship with God is like. Verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, one of the things, as we move forward here, recognize something else. Have you ever thought of it this way? What does God think about things? For example... The first one, in your notes there, I put this. What does God think about death? God the Father, what does he think about death? Can I show you what the Father thinks about death? Look at John eleven thirty three. We look to the Son. When Jesus saw weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, this was Lazarus' death, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus showed compassion for people that were experiencing the heartache of death. It screams that we have a heavenly Father that cares even when there's death in the issues of our lives. See, have we ever just wondered that God is just up there and he doesn't care about those things? Matter of fact, one of the easy ones for us is that we see him and that our primary role is really like the boss, you know what, We're supposed to serve him. And we have this presupposition that we were created to serve God only. Now, the question, what does God think about the word serving? Have you ever pondered that? That was that second bullet if you haven't filled that in. But can I show you what God thinks about serving? 
a nuance here, John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Go into the, in the upper room here. How we often take this verse is, see, we are supposed to serve God. But we miss something profoundly in this, is that you understand that God was serving us. God serves us. And in this passage, it reveals something to the, about our Father in heaven, is that he is deeply and profoundly humble, filled with humility. He is not a self-consumed father. He wants to serve you and me. We don't catch that. But another one, I, I don't have this one in the outline. Have you ever thought about what God the Father thinks about sin? Is he shaking his head up there and going, here Ken goes again. Is that really what we, who we have in the relationship with our Father? And I'll point to this. Let's look at the Son. What did he do about sin? He goes to the cross and he died for my sin. That's what he thinks about sin. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to break the stronghold over sin as we move and run toward Jesus and toward the Father. That's what he thinks about sin. But let me give you another one for your notes, that next one. What does he think about the socially challenged, the outcasts of our culture, those that should be shunned in society, even at times, in the sad part, the church, who the church shuns? What does God think about those people as a father? Does he, is he going, before you can come to me, you've got to clean up your act? Well, let me show you what he thinks. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 39. One of the Pharisees asked him over for a meal, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down at the dinner table. Just then a woman of the village, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisees, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping and raining tears on his feet, letting down her hair. She dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with perfume. When Jesus, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man was the prophet I thought he was, he would have known what kind of a woman this is who was falling over, over him. Jesus accepted the outcast. What does it say? Our Heavenly Father is inviting the outcasts to himself. And it's not about cleaning up your act first. It's just coming to him. Well, let me throw you one more. How about this next, this next phrase? How about his everlasting love? See, do you believe at some point that God is going to stop loving you? He's screw up enough that you're gonna, he's going to go, done with you? Can I show you how God views everlasting love? Look at John 13, 1. 
Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. you got to catch this, is that Jesus loved even Judas who betrayed him. He loved him to the end. Jesus did not stop when they goofed up. When Peter denied him the night before he goes to the cross, Jesus loved him to the very end. And do you know that we have a Father that has chosen you before the foundations of the world and that he's going to finish loving you and he won't, it won't end into eternity to the very end that we be with him, that we'll be with him. See, we could go on and on and look at Jesus. How does he relate to the people around himself? And as we look at that, we go, that's how the Father is. That's the character of the Father. So Philip, Thomas, Barb, Sally, Sam, Megan, Donna, whatever your name is, whoever has seen me sees the Father. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. As we look at Jesus, we see the Father. And it's why this book is important. We get to know the Son, and as we get to know the Son, as we learn to walk with Jesus, who's communicated in this book, we get to have a relationship with the Father. You know the Son, you know the Father. If you have a relationship with Christ, you have a relationship with the Father. And it's why maybe some of you here in this room, you, you don't have a personal relationship with the Son. And what Christ is doing is saying this, come and follow me. Give up your life. And you're going to find life, and I'm going to introduce you to my Father who is in heaven, and he is profoundly good. So we need to celebrate, folks. If you know Jesus, if you know him, we have a good Father. And we see it in the Son. The Son reveals the Father.